Welcome to Pondering Life Adventures, where you get to eavesdrop onto well-seasoned therapists to chat about our well-seasoned lives. My name is Bobby Beal. And I'm Mari Lung. Hey. Hello there. I have so many questions for you and things to say. I've been talking to you in my head all weekend long. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, uncork that bottle and let's let it roll. Well, the very first thing I want to say is I love your picture, your whatever you call that profile picture. Is that what it is? Oh, I don't know who took that, but they like captured this playful part of yourself, which is great. Like you have it, but you like me can be serious. And I'm guessing that you tend to be the responsible one in your family. Like I do as well. Yes. Yes. And, and I think that sometimes for me, people forget that I can be playful because I'm generally the responsible one because the people that I hang out with are all way less responsible than I am. <laughs> uh, does that mean you're an over responsibility or <laughs> possibly I was, I was thinking about that because my kids have just gotten into that phase where they are asking you know, have you did that? Did, did that happen to you when you were a kid? So whether they get hurt or they get in trouble, have that ever happened to you? What did you get in trouble for? Like, I don't remember, know if you remember that phrase, but that phase is, is really strong with them right now, especially if I, I, you know, I just scold them from something. They're like, weren't you a kid? Didn't you ever do that when you were a kid? <laughs> <laughs> so we've hit that phase and they are asking my dad about things I've gotten in trouble for. And, um, and, and I really didn't get in trouble for a lot for two reasons. One, I just made sure that my brother's gotten more trouble than I did. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, Some wait, just hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like whose idea really was this, you know, my dad's a scientist and engineer. So that root cause. So even if I was contributing, if it was one of my brother's ideas, initially, I got in less trouble because I wasn't the root cause of it. <laughs> <laughs> which by the way, doesn't actually work in my family. Um, <laughs> you participate, you help, you're part of the consequence. But the, so the other day, like I, I don't even remember what I was doing, trying to unpack lunch boxes or do something. Like I was doing something and it, it, I've noticed just these last really month that I've been able to do things more like 15 or 20 minutes and then check on the kids. Like it feels like that shifted between age five and six, where I would have to check on them like every five minutes and you really have to keep an ear on them. But now I've noticed I, go, I can go about 20 minutes and it's like a lighter ear, right? But I hear screaming, someone coming down the hall, screaming, a door slam, someone coming down the hall, screaming behind that, pounding on the door, two more people screaming behind that. <laughs> so like, clearly I need to investigate, right? And Henry yelling, stop, you can interrupt generational drama. <laughs> like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> so, so I go over to find out what's happening. And George wanted Alexander's attention. Alexander was drawing. She didn't want to give it to him. She said, no, thank you later. Like all the things she's supposed to say. And George picked up a marker and drew on her picture that she was drawing. Yeah, which Alexander got mad at fair enough but then she pushed him so then he was mad at that like clearly if I had been there I could there's lots of places that I could have intervened right? interrupt yes 
but I wasn't. And so after she pushed him, he chased her. She ran into her room to close her door and then he was trying to kick the door down, <laughs> which he probably could, he's strong enough. So we got all that sorted out and, um, and they actually did pretty well. They explained what was happening and why they were upset. And um, Henry helped Alexander to draw a new picture and Victoria went and got a basketball so that George could regulate, <laughs> bounce the ball back and forth, worked out fine. But I asked Henry, I'm like, what was that generational trauma? Like, what are you talking about? I thought maybe he, clearly we say generational trauma all the time, you know, not like on a daily basis, but it's not an unusual term. They were talking to my dad the day before and asking him about what I had gotten in trouble for. And my dad said that when I was a kid, something happened between me and my brother and I locked myself in my room and my brother kicked a hole in the door. And so I had to repair the door and replace it. I remember that. That was not my fault. First of all, my brother kicked the hole in the door. How could I be responsible for someone else who kicked the hole in the door? Back to root cause, remember? Um, but I also found out <laughs> that my dad got locked out of his bathroom by his sister when he was trying to get ready for school and he kicked a hole in the door and he got in trouble for it and he thought it was her fault. So my dad tells me like, yeah, you got in trouble because I think my sister should have gotten in trouble when I was a kid. <laughs> Three generations. I did stop it before there was a hole in the door this time. <laughs> Good. That's a new one. This is, they have not um, locked themselves behind doors yet. And maybe it's mostly because they have a lot of adult supervision. And so I intervene before it escalates to that. Like I don't we don't get a lot of hitting, we don't get a lot of breaking things, but I feel like that's because I interrupted it, tends to interrupt it well before that happens. It would have to be pretty spontaneous, you know, hitting kinds of behaviors versus that, like we're annoying you, we're annoying you kind of behavior. Well, and how does your level of supervision compare to your parents' level of supervision back in the day when you were a kid? Oh my gosh. My dad was never really around. He worked super long days. He left before we went to school. He was home after dinner, oftentimes when I was in bed and he traveled two weeks out of every month. So I don't, I can remember very specific events of how my dad supervised something that we were doing, but it's like really super project oriented, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't know that he was involved at all. My mom didn't like kids. She tried to get other people to supervise us if at all possible. <laughs> And for the most part, you know, the, it, when we came home from school, it was go play outside when the street lights change, come home, which is really different than how I supervise. And mm -hmm. to be fair, I probably over supervised because I still, um, I'm more sensitive about Henry. I think that there's just so many miscarriages before Henry showed up and I was just so scared that he wasn't going to be alive that um, I definitely, like, I have to consciously think like, it's okay that he's climbing the, the jungle gym. He can fall off and get scraped. Bones can be, you know, like I have to work myself intentionally to help with boundaries. I'm less so with the triplets, which kind of cracks me up because they were born earlier and technically they were more fragile. But I think at that point, you know, Henry was two. And so like, okay, we've got this, but I'm definitely more cautious with Henry and I really should be the most cautious with George because he's the one that like runs into things because he's not paying attention like literally runs into a tree I'm like what were you doing 
like I don't I was looking someplace else I thought the tree wouldn't still be there like George trees don't move like that like it's not going to suddenly be out of your path I don't know it, it is interesting that what you're describing is that your um supervision style and presence is far more related to your internal process than to your external children's needs yeah and it's good to recognize that uh you know and i and i think that's true i mean isn't that why we have helicopter parents not because yeah. the kids need to be helicoptered in and out of places but because the parents feel that need yeah right of my kids like george probably does need the most supervision and not because he's oppositional just because he's just not aware like he's his his little tunnel vision of what's happening he's not aware of where he is or who's around him and so I do try to work on that piece, but I know that when I'm tired, you know, I don't even like him going outside in the fenced in yard to practice the soccer by himself, but I'm like, he's six, I can see him out the window, there's a fence. Like I, I have to literally like walk myself through what is normal for six, what is really safe, what is he capable of? Um, but again, with the kid, with, I, you're right, I am really aware of it and I try to be really conscious of it. Um, Victoria and doing gymnastics I think you know like I do not like gymnastics I do not there's lots of things that I don't but she's now like flipping off of the balance beam you know doing round offs off the end of the balance beam. I can't even watch anymore so I either have another adult there or I've asked them if I can just come in and you know drop her off and pick her up because I like I almost can't breathe as I'm watching her smack into things as she's flipping over like you do in gymnastics you know there's lots of bruises and things that happen and the triplets are rougher with each other like I was giving them baths the other night and like what are all three of them have like these random bruises and all three of them are like oh that's just from tackle time I'm like what the heck is tackle time and why are you doing this <laughs> but they know like they don't do tackle time in front of me tackle time happened when there was a babysitter so to me I'm like I'm trying I clearly need to be more careful because they are aware more careful of myself not more careful with them and thank goodness they go to a Montessori school which is like super independent you know let the kids try this you know they're three years old they're chopping up the banana you know with a with a real knife not like a well it's not it's like one of those you know whatever guillotine knife things um but that that did play into I mean other than I believe in that kind of education it did play into it knowing that that is a struggle of mine that I need to have lots of spaces where they do have more it's interesting to have that dissonance like where my logic knows one thing and there are times when the emotions are just like I know you should be able to do this but you need to sit down right now <laughs> I don't know how do you do with that what does supervision look like for you yours is so much older Supervision is such a non-issue at the moment since we're quarantined, basically. Yeah. Right. Um, and so Blaze was Blaise pretty much could, she was stuck to Danny. Right. She was stuck to Danny. And so it became a different issue, uh, was that overconnection. But Blaze is allowed to like ride her bike around the neighborhood or uh, to walk up to the park at the corner, but she doesn't want to do any of those things by herself. And the twins are too little, the four-year-olds are too little to send down the road. Um, but Blaze at age 10, we don't have any problem with her walking or riding her bike, but she um, she doesn't always have alone. a companion. And so she doesn't want to go. There are girls who live next door to us and they'll play outside in the backyards together. And that's fine. 
So I, you're right. I have a much more relaxed um, feel about my supervision, but there, there's no need for supervision at the moment because she's just always with us. Right. So whereas George would get distracted and find himself down another street and at the 7-Eleven, you know, we live in a pretty busy area. Like it's a right. very urban area with yeah. um, other kinds of people around that we have to be more cautious of I feel not yeah. that it can't happen anywhere but like you know we can I agree we live in a, a cul-de-sac kind of area a really big one um with lots of condos and different places but um there's no through traffic where I live none right you have to come into the neighborhood because you live in here and it's uh, I don't want to make uh people think I live in a gated community I just live I on a street that. Yeah. Yes, I just live on a giant cul-de-sac that um, has a lot of multifamily uh, housing and things. And then on my side of the street, there are individual houses, but there's just no traffic to worry about, really. And so they, they have the run of this without uh, a huge need for visual supervision. But honestly, have you seen that? Uh, Danny just sent me a little meme that, meme that says, um, the last time kids attended regular school no. and so if they're in fifth grade the last time they attended regular school was in second grade oh my gosh because third grade got disrupted in march and fourth grade was a shit show <laughs> and um and now fifth grade she's back in school but lots of concerns and wait so if henry was in third grade his last normal school was kindergarten yeah because first grade would have been disrupted Interrupted. in March second and second grade, grade was, was however you handled it. Now you may feel in Florida <laughs> that your <laughs> school never wasn't regular because people did not well, follow the science changed. Absolutely. I wonder if it also is different based on what I'm comfortable with. Cause when I go camping with the kids, I give them much more freedom. They put up their tent by themselves. I'm there and can hear them, but they know how to light a fire. And that doesn't make me nervous, but man, if they want to go play tennis in the street, I'm like, no, no, I've got to be standing out there with them or other things that could happen around the house. All right. Well, so that was one of the things I also thought it was super interesting that it feels so related to grief and loss with Henry, like his fragileness seems more connected with that versus the reality of the, the triplets being fragile because they were born early they seem less fragile and how our brains can like trick us into things. You know, I know the facts about how he isn't fragile in that way. And I still can't override that emotional response. Yeah. I mean, I can when I'm feeling more regulated, but if I'm tired, it becomes harder and harder. You mean like exhausted from 19 months of a pandemic? Yeah. I just continually, I feel like I am the town crier. We're in a pandemic. We're in a pandemic because everywhere I go, people want to talk about a problem they've run into or how tired they are or how fussy their kid is. And I'm just like, how clingy their kids are. I'm like, it's a pandemic. Yes, we're still stuck there. Thank you very much. I wish we weren't, but we are. And they people scramble and they want to know, you know, who to blame or what to blame it on when I'm having these symptoms or these issues. And I'm like, it's still the pandemic is going to be your, you have to rule that out first before anything else for everything. 
because it just like superpowers all of our anxieties, fears, exhaustion, symptoms, irritabilityness with our kids and our spouses. And, um, and then you get mad at yourself and beat yourself up. And then you're like horrible to yourself. And, um, uh, and the whole thing's problematic. And we're so far into this pandemic that people don't want to think about it anymore. And so they ignore the fact that that's exactly what the problem is. And if you were well rested and not anxious about the state of the world, you might have a different response or reaction, but you're not. And you can't just like, okay, I'm going to get a good night's sleep. Oh my gosh, Mari, I came back from a little road trip that we, we visited some friends who drove to New York from Massachusetts and we drove to New York from Ohio and it was a meeting point in between. We had a lovely weekend camp out with them and it felt very relaxing. Um, but we're still in a pandemic. Like we try to do things that make us feel normal and connected, but, and we do them as safely as we possibly can outdoor visiting. But even and that, like that, you notice that, right? Like, so you and I spend a lot of times outdoors. Yeah. So to me, I would feel like the outdoors is kind of my, you know, not novel space, but it feels novel with these people. You know, I had coffee with someone we met outdoors and we were sitting at the opposite ends of the picnic table. And it was weird. It wasn't weird for me to have coffee outside. It was weird for me to have coffee outside with that person. And so even though our conversation was fine and we weren't talking about the pandemic, there was still that other piece of, it's still there. This is still different. Agreed. And Agreed. I can tell you and too, like whether you believe in the in the pandemic or not, it still impacts you. You still see people wearing masks or not. <laughs> like oftentimes I feel like I'm the only one wearing masks. You'll see like our stores have signs that say we appreciate you wearing a mask or something like that. They can't mandate it. And people don't. A couple of the employees do. Um so it, it, it's around us invisible, whether you want to admit it or not. Agreed. Agreed. It's really rough. And, and, and it is tiring and it's, it's collided for me. It's collided with the car accident. That was the second question I had for you. Oh. <laughs> Are you ready to switch gears from it? Sure. Switch gears. I'm so automatic, like automotive metaphor this morning, because I want to <laughs> talk about your, your accident. The question I have for you, well, I have several questions. And of course, you know, you don't have to answer any of them that you don't want to answer, or you can answer it and tell me you don't want it. If you answer something that you don't want posted, how long ago was your accident? Uh, my accident was in 2005. It was the weekend of the hurricane Katrina. Oh, that's like, you're not gonna forget that. Like it just, Gross. Well, I missed the hurricane because I crashed on Friday and I believe the hurricane came ashore on Saturday or Sunday. Wow. And I was in and then a you fall. woke up with the hurricane aftermath. Sort of. Well, that's weird. I, I only knew pain and tragedy for three days until they could do the surgery. But okay. not so there is a little retro and post amnesia around the accident itself, but only moments, only moments before because I can remember what I was wearing. I can remember being on the motorcycle. I can remember reaching back and grabbing Jesse's knee, just giving him a little squeeze while we were riding down the road. And, and then, then <laughs> boom. Did you, 
know that the accident was about to happen. Like for me, I, no. I was watching the car coming no. towards me. No. So you, the next thing that you remember was the boom or was being on the ground? Being on the ground. I was at, I remember it up into, I was sitting at a red light. And so even now, you know, from 2005 to now, like you can still remember how the handlebars felt. Like, I feel like I can still feel the steering wheel, like right before it happened. So I remember for whatever reason, the t-shirt that I was wearing and the jeans that I was wearing, because they were like my favorite Friday outfit. And we were <laughs> heading home to cook barbecue ribs on the grill with our next door neighbors. And like, I have this, the whole thing is packed around this weekend event that we were going to do. And, um, and then I remember, so I can remember like my presence on the bike with Jesse and what I was wearing and that we were in great moods and then blank that I'm blank for the impact. Right. And, uh, and I remember laying on the pavement and looking over across the intersection and seeing Jesse uh, sort of straddling the bike, like his, his body was still on the bike in part and, um, and saying to him and being concerned instantly that um, could the bike blow up? There's gas, you know, that sort oh, of thing. Right. Like, and so saying to him, get off the bike, baby, get off the bike, back off the bike. And he did, he just sort of crawled off of the bike and tried to crawl towards me, but just flopped over. And, and we, we laid there staring at each other, probably eight to 10 feet apart. It feels like a really long time, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I know that it really wasn't for me before emergency personnel arrived but it felt so long. It was a little bit of time. I mean, before emergency personnel got to us, I couldn't tell you now. I, and, uh, you know, know because I can look at the report and see like the accident call came in here. The first one came in there and, and it's that, you know, it's, it's like four minutes, but I swear it felt like it was a half an hour. (laughs) Like it just did not feel that quick to me. And then I think about everything that happened between being hit and emergency personnel arriving. I'm like, that was a lot of stuff that happened Mm -hmm. at that in during that time. Well, it makes me think of Mari, just to pull it, raise it to the trauma level, just look at it as an existing trauma. It's that time warpiness. Yeah. Well, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you, like, did you have that time warpiness? Yeah, it seemed like it took forever, right? I'm laying on the pavement. I, and so I know some things uh, that happened because there were witnesses who talked to me. Mm. And so I, I had the same problem with some photos of me and mo- little eight millimeter movies of me as a very, very young child. I think I have memories of these events, but it's because Someone I have repeatedly you. watched them. And yeah. my family told stories about, oh yeah, that's you sitting under the table feeding the dog potato chips. And so that's become your memory. <laughs> yes. And so it's been solidified and retained as a memory. And so uh, there was a woman from my organization, from the agency who was behind us oh. in a car and watched the entire thing. Mm. And so she reported to me that I tried to stand. And of course my leg was not working. 
and I tried to stand to go to Jesse, but that I, I, I got up on one leg and fell over. And I don't have an actual memory of doing that, but it's now part of my repertoire of understanding of that, those moments, you know? And so, so it gets confusing and the time warp thing is real. Um, seemed like it took forever for them to get there and start working on me. But by the, when they put their hands on me, I was super unhappy because it was also it agonizingly painful. <laughs> right. And um, yep. And I know that uh, I spent some time simply yelling uh, swear words. <laughs> oh, I needed you. <laughs> right. And uh, I know that they got Jesse out of there first before they touched me. And he was really okay just some road rash, but they got him out of there on a board first because they didn't want him to see or hear me. And they knew that that was smart. Yeah. And they knew that it was not going to be good because my leg was like dangling off at a bad angle. (laughs) And so, um, so I have all these thoughts and memories around it that aren't um, necessarily a clear consecutive thread, but there is like this messiness. I feel like you know, whatever was happening that day, I was like a little ant in the line, just doing my thing. And then someone put a finger in the midst of it and all this stuff like happened. And then at some point I like started back on my line again. Like it just, it feels so disorienting even after all this time. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't unconscious, like none of that happened, but man, trauma just really gets into your brain in in such a way. Like, I can't tell you what I had for dinner last night, but I can tell you like the light was red and this was the temperature. I just looked at the temperature on my car, like right before I looked up into the mirror to see the car coming towards me. Yeah. Um, and I, like, I can see my soda in the cup holder. I don't know if you remember that either, but that was one of the things I was so confused about afterwards of like, where did my soda cup go? And it was ended up in the back seat, like from the front seat to the back seat, just the, the way that the physics but I remember being really confused about things that seem to like not really matter. Just being so, so disoriented. I wanted to go home. Like, I was like, I don't care what you do with the car. I just, I just want to go home and being really stuck on that. And who's going to pick up the kids. And I, and I remember telling them like, I have to pick up the kids. Is this like really going to take 10 minutes because my kids will be waiting at school. And then all I kept saying was like, my kids are at school. My kids are at school. Like I just couldn't, you know, they were like, do you have neck pain? I'm like, my kids are at school. Like, I just, I, like, I clearly wasn't answering anything. And I think it was just a trauma response. Yeah, but- of course it was. So I have a, a couple of thoughts that uh, have been on my mind lately about this whole trauma response thing. And in part, it has to do with 9-11 because, yeah. you know, we just had the anniversary, 20 yeah. years of 9-11. And um, years, yeah. And I have a lot of, as most adults do, you have strong memories around when you heard that happened and watching the news all day and those sorts of things. Um, But the point I want to drill down to is uh, recently they released a show called Come From Away, uh, a musical that was about 9-11. And they released it on... um, TV. Now I'm not going to remember. Where is it? Hulu, Netflix. I, you know, you could probably find it for me. Yeah. I just looked it up. So I'll post it. Okay. But it was about, um, come from away is a musical. And so you have to, 
you have to be okay with it being a musical. If you're not a musical person, you might not be able to tolerate it. But it was a different perspective of watching 9-11 happen. And it was a perspective from Newfoundland and right. um, and how they diverted all these large planes to, to land there town. <laughs> in this little teeny town so that it literally more than doubled their population for three days. Wow. But what I want to talk about is trauma response and um, how how those people were amazing in how they rallied and took care of all 7,000 people and the animals on those planes for three days with barely, you know, it, it's gotta be tough to come up with the resources to feed and house that many people when your town is only 5,000 people. You know, I yeah. just really sort of incredible. But what it, what I'm finally getting around to is they could do that because they had this trauma response. They had oh. this capacity to meet the need of the crisis. And, um, and they were able to like turn it on. And at the very end, uh, one of the last songs at the end, they talk about they hadn't slept for three days now and they hadn't taken care of their own things for three days now and, um, and how exhausted they were and that they all got to like have that refractory period of like coming back into themselves and the difference between that oh. huge trauma right i mean giant yeah. trauma at that point in time that was the biggest shared trauma that we had ever experienced in the united states uh in a single day right the ongoing chronic kinds of trauma slavery oppression, those sorts of things. Yes. But that event kind of trauma. And, um, and we all did our best to recover from that, but that's because it ended. Right. It, it had, had, it was very, it had this containment to it, especially in Newfoundland where right. the planes landed, they all coped with each other and it, and then the planes left and it, and what a clean cut event and your ability to like put it into perspective and calm your brain down and get back in touch with your your regular needs and take care of yourself so the bottom line is human beings are designed to deal with crisis mm. but the crisis is supposed to have a time limit of a few hours to a few days and 19 months later we are all suffering because we don't get that recovery period. And people are trying, like we took that weekend and went and just sat around with friends, <laughs> you know, and uh, talked about things besides the pandemic. And so that's helpful, but uh, it's hard to fully recover when you can't escape the reality that you're still in crisis. So, so that brings me back like, do you think that some of the slower recovery from the car accident is because I was already in crisis mode from the pandemic? Could that be compounding it? Of course, of course. It happened during the pandemic. So you didn't have all your resources right, to, get to give to the current crisis because uh, let's go back to our bandwidth episode. Right. You were using all of your bandwidth to cope with how do I go and exchange this car during a pandemic? Yes. 
we were we were doing that and it was so funny because there were very specific procedures like you pull in you get out of the car you text them that the car is there they come out like it, it was still at the time when even florida was following some procedures you know, <laughs> contact pieces so yeah that was a little bit tricky and as you're saying that like not only did i not have those resources that bandwidth but I didn't have the social resources. I feel like people knew I was an accident because I briefly posted about it. It feels like this big thing happened and some people kind of know about it, but because we were isolated, no one really saw, like I couldn't put my shoes on for three months. Like there was no one that even witnessed that I am doing better, and, but I still am in pain. And thank goodness that <laughs> as a healthcare provider, I'm like, I, and I can get, you know, EMDR for this or whatever, like I could, I'm doing things to, that address it, but it does feel like a tree fell in the middle of the woods and no one saw it. Right. And I think Mari, that speaks to, you're getting into these layers of trauma. Yeah. And I think that speaks to this concept that um, for white middle and upper class America, this, uh, for many of us, this is the first time we've lived with this oppressive ongoing trauma and crisis, yeah. but for um, BIPOC people, for kids in foster care, for, uh, you know, people, people who, who experience, mm -hmm. people who are trans, yes, this ongoing um, potential threat and trauma, you just keep layering things on top of it. And so are there, uh, I guess you can try to look at it both ways. Does that mean they're more prepared to respond or to deal with it because they're used to it? Or does that mean their resources are depleted because they've had to manage systemic racism or loss of parental figures or uh, discrimination, you know? And so- And the data looks scary. You know, it, the suicide rate in BIPOC populations since the pandemic is up 45% <laughs> in BIPOC, not in white populations. Right. That is really significant. I mean, you and I know that that rate changes one or two or three percentages a year. 45% is a huge leap. outlier. Yeah. Yeah. And that, to me, I think that's connected to what you're saying, too. I agree. And it answers that question. Do we yeah. think that they're somehow more prepared to cope with it? Because for sure, sometimes... Um, I find that my black friends are less surprised yes. at things than I am. Yeah, I seem to be a little more confused quicker. <laughs> right. I'm like, what is happening? This is horrible. And they're like, mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. <laughs> they're like, they're yeah. just more centered about it being horrible. I don't know. I'm not sure how to take all this in, but but the <laughs> fact so that the um Mental health rates, including suicide, are, are just skyrocketing. And, um, and so that tells me, no, it doesn't make them better able to cope with it. Um, yeah. Maybe just less surprised that the world is so awful. Or, yeah, I guess they could be coping differently, but they're still struggling, right? I'm struggling through the surprise. They're struggling through the reality of accessing even less resources than they had before. Yeah. They're not surprised, Agreed. but there's even less available. Agreed. One last question about the accident. Okay. Jesse, how old was Jesse when it happened? Eight. So same as Henry's age. And Henry's the one that I had a question of, and he wasn't even in the accident, but they saw the car afterwards 
And remember, we're dealing with a lot of death in a variety of ways in our family than they have since, you know, Henry was little, since he was five. Right, well, because I, I feel like we have to add in the fact that your partner has cancer and right. that you were just prior to the pandemic, you were very, very concerned that she might, how long was she going to make it? Now she's right. still with us. And so it's not as painful to recall that at the moment. I agree. Um, but it was a, uh, there was, it felt like a much bigger risk of losing her yeah. um, earlier on. And then they got a handle on the treatment and she had a good response to it, Thank that goodness. sort of thing. But so bandwidth again, you like, where do you devote your, your crisis response? <laughs> I don't know, but he is really afraid to have me drive by myself. So much so that he's gotten to, he'll put his stuffed animal in the passenger seat and buckle it in because then I'm not alone if an accident happens. He really doesn't want me to be, a, a, he doesn't want me to be in an accident, but what he keeps coming around to is, I don't want you to be alone if you die. So I think he's worried about that, or I don't know what else that might be tied to. Um, but there's lots of conversation about it. He also asked me, because you know that we have different faith beliefs. And so there's lots of different conversations about what happens after you die. We've been like working on that and, and navigating our ways around that. He asked me yesterday, so if you die and go to heaven, when you die in heaven, do you come back to earth? Like, I think you're talking about reincarnation. <laughs> I'm not sure it's actually framed that way. I don't know a lot about reincarnation. <laughs> I think, I think that's what you're asking me, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, how long did Jesse, was Jesse worried about you? I feel like eight at eight, they, they have this like protective thing that at six, it's not that my kids, my six-year-olds want me to get hurt, but they're not as protective of me as my eight-year-old is. I don't uh, recall Jesse having a particularly increased worry about me. I think he continued to see me as I mean, I survived it. And so I think he continues to just see me as strong and capable, right? <laughs> and um, my, I, but I also want to point out that I was far more injured and traumatized yeah. than you were in your accident. I know yeah. that it was bad. I know that you, you know, you have oh, your- no, but you were like in a hospital still, for a while. But I was hospitalized for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so my brain's super fuzzy about that time. And so I could have been doing things and you don't remember. Well, and we weren't together. I was not sent home. He right. lived with Tammy. He moved it. He, we, we had shared parenting by that time. And Danny was spending most of her time coming to the hospital and taking care of me and, and making sure things were happening for me. And he just moved um, in full-time with Tammy for the next three months that's neither good nor bad. It's just what it was. And uh, so I am unaware if he had, I would have to ask Tammy, I could reach out to her. Uh, we have a good relationship and, and she did what needed to be done back then. And, and, um, but I don't know. I don't know if he was worried about me, honestly. And I wonder, and I, I feel like we could just ask Jesse at some point, I wonder what he remembers now. Like, True. I wonder what, what will Henry remember Kind of like, does he integrate that into the narrative of like, yep, my mom is tough and strong and can figure it out. Like, is that, cause clearly that's what he thinks of you, right? Yeah, I, I think <laughs> um, so. And then part of my worry going all the way back to the beginning of the conversation is my overprotectiveness of Henry being mirrored back to me by Henry. Right. 
a reinforcing loop. Yeah. And I had no reinforcing loops with Jesse to be worried because right. he really could only come to the hospital once or I, I don't remember that happening very often. Now, when I was moved to rehab, because then I was in the hospital for several weeks and then um, another month in rehab, but that was closer to his home and, and more normalized, right? Right. Rehab. It's pleasant. It's pretty. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not as the hallways are blue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just is a nicer. It was a really beautiful place. Frankly, I thought I landed in heaven after the Metro hospital. I, you know, it's interesting because they, I, because of COVID, I couldn't go to the hospital. They sent me to, you know, they had to find out where are some clinics that have MRIs and x-rays and cause they didn't, the ER at that time, like it just wasn't safe for me to go there. And although I would have done um, rehab for a while, they, they didn't, they weren't approving it either. So even though it would not have been as long, but they're like, yeah, you would have been in the hospital for two or three days. And then we would have put you in rehab for two weeks to get you set up and everything moving and then switch you to PT. They just said, you know, you're going to just wait and recover at home for two weeks and then start PT. Like I missed some of that because of COVID. So I also don't know, like, is my healing taking longer because I didn't have that initial part? Who knows at this point? Does it really matter? Yeah. I don't know. But I think you did answer my question about the protectiveness for Henry might be accidentally, like the timing of everything you know, between COVID and the accident and then reinforcing that protective loop that makes sense of why it's there, but put all of these three things together and... I think his anxiety is just responding. Like our, you know, kids respond to that. Mm -hmm. And some of them, uh, I hopefully a smaller percentage, 10%, they really struggle with not recovering because they mm -hmm. weren't able to process any of it and do things. But there's that big group in the middle, you know, maybe 50% of people with um, trauma who, who work it out somehow. Or they, uh, they're big into meditation and exercise and self-care and they're able to heal themselves. I, I think that exists. I think yeah. that a lot of people would benefit from a trained professional to sort of help them walk through it. And it might be a little bit faster, a little less. Might be, bandwidth. might be. Agreed. Like, that's why I do your mindfulness is because I don't even have to think about it. I can just follow you along. Though <laughs> <laughs> you have a whole bunch of clients that... <laughs> follow your mindfulness I no i don't i do a little youtube channel that's going to be your christmas present of your mindfulness <laughs> clips well that's good because i have some new ones that we should record i have really enjoyed this one by la seriento i i'm not i'm sure i'm messing up her last name but um their last name but uh she did a, a little spin on radical kindness which is really about being kind to yourself. Mm, oh yeah. Self-compassion. These phrases just, I've heard a lot of people do loving kindness meditations and self-compassion meditations, but her phrases like really connected with me. And so if we, uh, if you open up that YouTube channel, I think I'll have to start recording more. I'll do that. Yeah. You know that it's funny that you say that about words, because I think that's what gets me tripped up sometimes in some of the mindfulness you know, like I'm all there for it. I'm with the research. And then you're like, just feel the roots coming out from the, your feet down into the earth. I'm like, I'm pretty nature oriented and I'm not following you. <laughs> like, right. Right. Your brain is, if, 
your brain wants to attach to the things that you disagree with, as opposed <laughs> to just going with the flow. And it obviously dismantles the point of what's happening. But you don't use that language as much. There's one that was like, oh, she just did it. <laughs> <laughs> But for the most part, it feels like to me, it feels like our regular conversational language. And so it's familiar. And so you're right. I don't get distracted by that because all of that's familiar and I can just follow um, where you're taking me. I also don't think that you like I know you. So I don't think that you're going to take me into super dangerous territory. I do la, la, think that you would poke at things because I think you like to poke at things. <laughs> <laughs> But I also think if I, if I asked you to back off, you would. I, I, so. well, I agree. Unless we're in person and then I'm going to push you. <laughs> well, right. Cause I also think, you know, that I tend to say stop well before, cause I don't believe that people are going to stop. So I like have you stop three miles out so that. Right. And so I might keep going for at my stopping point. <laughs> I think then, you could take more. I'm coming in. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're, you're like. Scoot over. That much of a runway. <laughs> Scoot over. I'm coming in. We got to go further. But I don't know that very many people know that about me. And so I tend to be pretty careful about that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for my therapy session. <laughs> great this weekend, too. Well, you did annoy me at one point, but for the most part, your answers were good this weekend. <laughs> when I was talking. Oh, in your you head? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even in my head, you annoyed me once. <laughs> That's so funny. You were controlling the narrative and I annoyed you. All right. That tells me a lot about how you see me. <laughs> <laughs> see you next time. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Until next time. Stay well, be kind, and enjoy life's adventures. Ciao. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Pondering Life Adventures, where you got to eavesdrop on two well-seasoned therapists chat about our well-seasoned lives. You can find us on Spotify or Google Podcasts or Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Like, subscribe, review, share, you know, do your thing. You can follow us on our Facebook group page, Pondering Life Adventures, where you can send us a personal message or share a link to your social media, or you can visit us on our platform anchor and leave us a voice message. Who knows, you might get featured in an upcoming episode. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash ponderingLifeAdventures, where you can become an active participant in supporting our creative process with a monthly membership. You get access to exclusive content, such as some of our funny outtakes, and insight into our creative process.